The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Fucking... Darn it, where'd I put those? Oh, here they are. <laughs> Beat Flair and the Omni in Atlanta in 82. Did you know that? Well, yeah, nice. You'll hear about it. Nice. But hello and welcome to Man Power Trip of Wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today, very special guest, former NWA Florida World Tag Team Champion. You may know him as the Power of the Punch or the Cooker. He is Mr. Bob Cook. Bob, welcome into the Two Man Power Trip. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate the ask. Is that how you say that? I don't know. Kind of, I guess. Sort of. But what's going on in your world? What have you been up to? I've been mourning the loss of my dog. Thanks for bringing it up. Oh, wait a minute. I did. Why did I do that? Because I like to cry in public and make a fool out of myself. That's what I like to do. I'm going to try to avoid that tonight, though. Sorry to hear about the dog. So am I. What else? Hanging out with uh, Evil Knievel? What have you been up to? Well, if I was hanging out with Evil Knievel, I'd be hanging out with my dog because they're both dead. Thanks for bringing that up. What the heck is uh, it? Give me my Mountain Dew. Makeup. Good Lord. <laughs> no, I actually, I've been playing a game called Trials yeah, Rising. Play. A game called Trials Rising where I've been creating all of Evil Knievel's famous jumps. And it's quite spectacular. And it keeps my mind off of the other things I just mentioned. That's what I was going for, the uh, evil, because I didn't realize you were such a big Evil Knievel fan, but obviously you are. I'm the biggest evil. I was a friend of his as well, so there you go. And then um, Super Dave Osborne, Marty Funkhauser passed away too this this year. But I don't care like, about that. Like a, but he was like a wannabe, right? He was doing a wannabe Evil Knievel gimmick? Well, he was more mocking it all, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was a joke, obviously, but I don't know if yeah. Evil thought it was funny. But wrestling-wise, though, what have you been up to? Anything? I mean, I know you guys do your uh, your Tampa luncheons and stuff. So what have you been up to as far as the wrestling world? Yeah, we did that uh, a couple weeks ago. We honored Dennis Knight, uh, Midian. Uh, what's his other gimmicks? I don't know. Tex Lassinger. Tex Lassinger and uh, Godwin. Phineas Godwin, that's it. P-I-G, Phineas I. Godwin, yep. Great guy. He gave a very good speech. He put me over as requested. You know, it's one of the requirements is, hey, you want to be honored at the Legends Lunch? Oh, great. But you got to put me over. So he did really good at that. How'd it go at the at these lunches? Because it seems like it's pretty great. But is it just 
you have to be a you know Florida member to be on these on these luncheons. Or no, you as long as you're in the wrestling business, you can come to the lunch. Whether you're a manager, a wrestler, or a male, female, or if you're a friend of the wrestlers, you know we we over the years have become friends with several of the fans here in Florida, and they come to the lunches. You got to be invited if you're not a wrestler, but if you're a wrestler, you can just waddle in or use your cane as most of them do and have a good time. Who's usually there? Who's some of the guys that, that show up? Uh, Steve Kern, Bugsy McGraw, Jerry Briscoe, Haku, Ricky Santana, the Cuban assassin, Dave Sierra. Of course, Brian Blair is the host, the president of the Cauliflower Alley Club. Uh, we've had a lot of famous guys there besides the one Ricky Steamboat's been there, Dory Funk, Kevin Sullivan, J.J. Dillon, the Nasty Boys, Mr. Wonderful, not Mr. Wonderful, sorry, I take that back, Ted DiBiase, uh, Ronnie Garvin was there last week. It's a great time. Wow, it's a pretty good cast of characters there. Pretty good. Crew. Yeah, Brian's work. We're hoping to honor Dutch Mantel at the next one, and the guys we were supposed to honor along with Dennis, because we usually do two honorees. But this last time we were going to do three, but one of the guys got sick with that. Uh, what's the what do they call it? I can't think of the name. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Oh yeah, COVID. I'm sick of COVID. Yes. Pretty cool though. You I'm not sick from COVID though. Obviously, I'd have lost some weight. But you guys, it's pretty cool. You guys do that though, because you know you, you got to honor the, the the legends. I like that. Yeah, Brian started it. Brian, Jerry Briscoe, and Jack Briscoe—they all started it over twenty years ago as a way to keep uh, Gordon Soley and Hiro Matsuda, who were both dying from cancer at the time, it was a way just to get together and reminisce, get their mind off of their you know their impending doom, however you want to look at it. And Brian's just kept it going all these years, and it's just a great time. I'm on the board of directors, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I can put it out there, and people go, oh, wow, that's cool, Bob Cook. Who is he again? I don't know, but he's on the board of directors. Come on, you've been everywhere. Everybody should know the cooker. Come on. Well, you know, they should, and if they did, they'd send me a dollar. That add up you, after a while. With you, do a lot of people say when they do you know, recognize you, they do know you, do they say, hey, you had one of the greatest punches of all time? A lot of them do. I like the ones that go, man, you had the best putts. That left hand was awesome. And I say, yeah, it was a right hand. Get away from me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I had a good left jab once right. in a while. But uh, I use the right most of the time. I was going to say, it's, it's the right. But I have heard people say you had a good left. I was like, I don't know about that. But Well, I had a good jab right. once in a while. Depending on who I was wrestling. Yeah. Like, you go back a while, I had a match with Ricky Steamboat with Cactus Jack calling the action. And he's going, yelling, come on, Cookie. Come on, Cookie. I threw a couple of nice jabs on Steamboat. <laughs> What do you learn, though, that, that awesome right that you had? Because some guys have horrible, now, especially nowadays, forget about it, but some guys aren't that good of punchers, but you're uh, kind of a master of it. I learned by practicing and watching other guys I thought did it great, like Dick Murdoch, Terry Funk, Ric Flair, Jerry Lawler, who I think has the greatest punch of all time. When he's on, you go back and watch some of his stuff with Bill Dundee, and I worked with Lawler, and his punch is light as a feather, but it looks amazing. Because most guys only punch one way. Like Randy Savage had a great punch, but he only punched one way, like to the forehead. And he had a good jab, too. But Lawler could punch roundhouses, uppercuts, right to your face, right to your jaw, the mounted punches, and every one of them looked great when he was on. Like you go back and watch his matches with Terry Funk or Nick Bockwink or guys that just know how to. It also involves selling, something else that's kind of foreign in wrestling today. But a punch is no different than anything else. You go practice a moonsault 10 hours a day on a mat. Or padding, Vince to get it down perfect. Same thing with a punch, but it's not important anymore, which makes no sense to me, but a lot doesn't make sense to me nowadays. 
Yeah, I feel like they'd use the flipper always, like the guy. Yeah, that, that horrible, or they'll do those horrible forearms where they'll slap their legs with each forearm or or each, or either that or do something even dumber and hit each other for real, which is really stupid. Then you become the mark. When you're the wrestler and you start hitting yourself harder and harder, you become the mark. That is true. That's Which not the way the business was. I was taught by the great Malenko. It's an art, and the art is to make it look real without, real without being real, look stiff without being stiff. That's the art. Any idiot can punch somebody really hard and go, hey, look, it looked real. Well, because it was. But most of the time, real punches in wrestling look horrible, you know? I've seen it a lot. Like, let's just say the nasty boys, not to say that they had bad punch, but sometimes they would look real sloppy, but you could tell they were really potatoing the guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kill them, guys. yeah. I never work with them, but I know what you're talking about. You're looking at Vader. Vader did that to everybody. Yeah. Those were, but we don't want to talk about him. We want to keep it on a upside. Yeah. Where do you like practice or how do you practice? You practice on somebody or, or do you do the flyer method? What did he put a towel or something? And he'd like try to almost hit the towel without making the towel move. I tried all that. When I was a kid, before I even got arrested, I used to walk by things and just punch them. The refrigerator door, or, uh, you know, a door, a hallway or what, anything. Just walk by and throw a punch. <laughs> anyway, I thought, you know, I love the way Terry Funk did his, like, what I call his baseball punch, where he's almost like he's winding up to throw a baseball with his left yeah. hand and, and throw the punch. And, and again, Lawler, copying Lawler and Dick Murdoch, where he had those straight jabs right to the face and flare with those perfect punches, you know, right to your jaw when you didn't even feel. I think what you do is you just, well, again, practice, practice, practice. Watch guys that know what they're doing. But you have to have the ability to know that they know what they're doing. Because some people will go, oh, the Big Show had a great punch. And I'll say, yeah, drink some of my alcohol and share it with me. He probably really hit you with it. I don't know, but it never looked that great. Camera angles, magic tricks. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to do that in the old days with guys like, you know, Lawler and Flair and Murdoch and Killer Kyle Cox was another guy who had a great punch. Like a lot of guys did. If you start going down the list, hey, let me look. Like I said, here's a list. Uh, that's about all I can pick up. No, but there's a lot of guys that had great punches. Hey, Disco Inferno too. Surprisingly, did he? Punch. I don't remember that. But you know, yeah. and to me, that's just as important as anything else. If you're in a feud like tonight, I don't watch a lot of AEW, but y'all, you hear about it tonight because it's on, right? You got the Texas yeah. Death Match with Adam Page and that other guy. Now, if they go out there and do a bunch of kicks and slaps and, you know, slap their legs and yada, 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 but their punches are crap, that's not going to bring the people into the match as much as if they're throwing punches, it looks like they're killing each other. They're going to get into the match. The people want to be fooled, first of all. The people want to believe. Even though they go to the match, they know the, sh the way the show is, but they want to be convinced, you know, and you can still do that if you're good enough. You then again, maybe not. What do I know? You watch a lot of current wrestling or not? Not really. Not as much as I used to. I used to watch it all the time. Never missed a show, but I've just, I've lost interest. It's nothing to do with the wrestlers. I don't know what happened. I just, you know, I'll check out like the, what do they call those? The thumbnails on YouTube and go, Oh, let me check this out. And like two minutes into it, I'll be like, ah, I don't want to watch, that, you know? Right. But, but I've watched some of the stuff like Daniel Bryan had an awesome match with Adam page and, and uh, a couple other matches he had. I watched uh, Kenny Omega. Fantastic matches, you know. When when it, when people start talking about, well, let me check it out and I'll watch it. I have nothing against anybody. I'm not a bitter old veteran as a lot of the guys are. I've just kind of lost. I watch the pay per views or the premium live events as they're called now. Yes, just because I have the network, so you know why not watch it? 
Yeah, can't beat that. Five bucks a month or whatever it is. Yeah, can't beat that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Best thing WWE ever did. And it probably wasn't even Vince's idea. Probably not, no. There's some of me on there, too, if you want to get, uh, you know, if you want to help with your insomnia or something like that. Can you actually use, like, the search bar? Because I heard that was a problem. Used to be yeah, you know, I don't like network. that. That's the one the thing name. about the new network I don't like. The old network, you could type in your name, anybody's name, and if they're on the network, everything would pop up. Can't do yeah. that anymore. It's going to be hard to find your WWF and WCW stuff now. Well, you know, nobody would want to look for it anyways. But if you do, it's like on the Raw. It's on uh, WCW Saturday night. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. You know what? Also, too, like the apron bumps. I don't know if you have a problem with that. The hardest part of the ring, everyone yeah. knows it's hard, but they're they're really doing these bumps. Like to hurt. I you. don't understand it. You know, you see guys like again, go to our legends lunches, and the guys that didn't do half the crazy stuff the guys today are doing have a hard time walking. Need a cane. Need a walker. Need a crutch. Something. They're all you know crippled up, and they didn't do half the stuff these guys are doing. These guys are in for a world of hurt. Definitely. Obviously, they don't mind. That's their life and more power to them. But, you know, I, I always just cringe when guys do that. I just, why take the chance? But I've questioned that with wrestling all the time. You know, when like someone like Nikki Bella, remember she had her neck surgery? Yeah. And what's the first thing she does when she comes back? She takes bumps on the floor. She's got people doing all kinds of things to her neck. Now, I don't know if she's like just some kind of weirdo who likes, oh, I'm going to see if the surgeon was right and it's going to be okay. But why take that chance? I don't understand it weird protect you know protect yourself yeah especially her who has all those outside ventures like do you really need to be doing that like crazy i mean the normal bumps that you learn and that you take through the years are hard enough and i did a lot of stupid stuff when i was young i bounced down bleachers at high school gyms and when you're doing it you know the, the 400 people that are in a crowd are go oh my god i can't believe it and you go home with bumps and bruises all over you going, what i was stupid i need to do it again the next week because you're young <laughs> but now you think back, you go, well, you know why I can't walk straight now? Well, 1989, there at that high school in uh, Hernando, Florida. <laughs> yeah. But it was fun. Crazy bump. Yeah. I think I got 75 bucks for that. Well, maybe 100 <laughs> Not bad back then. Huh? Nice. So just for you, though, you mentioned Boris Malenko, the great Malenko. How did she actually get in, though? Like, Was it hard to get in? Because it seems like some guys didn't want to break guys in back then. Well, I mean, obviously, it, you know, it's a different time. Nowadays, you can, there's a, like a school and, every, you know, around tax season, more schools open up because, you know, you got highspots.com, you got monsterrings.com. Hey, I got my tax money, honey. I want a, a ring. I watched some videos once. I think I'll teach some guys how to be wrestlers. But when I broke in, you, you couldn't do that, obviously. And uh, I moved to Tampa after I graduated from high school in 1981, specifically with the idea of becoming a pro wrestler without having any clue how to do it, other than I knew the championship wrestling from Florida taped their TV out of the famous sportatorium. And I went there one day on a Wednesday morning when they taped it. And after the show, I talked to an old wrestler named Gordon Nelson, who at the time was still wrestling. He was also the guy who set up the rings and things. And I just asked him, I said, Mr. Nelson, how did, I was only 18 years old. You know, how can I be a wrestler? And he said, well, kid, you got to get in really good shape and come in for a tryout, which back in those days meant, you're not going to walk out of the place. You know, they're going to break your leg. They're going to hurt you. They're going to discourage right. you. I didn't know that. And thankfully I didn't have to find out until years later, but the next week I went to the armory in Tampa, which is where they had 
championship wrestling from Florida every Tuesday night for like 40 years. And I just went because I lived in Tampa and it was the Armory. But we came out of the show and there was a flyer on the car that said, become a pro wrestler, travel the world, make big money, become a TV star. And it was for the great Malenko's wrestling school. And I went the next day. I met a guy named Carl von Stroheim, who was a famous wrestler in this day, along with his brother, Kurt, NWA Tag Team Champions, blah, blah, German gimmick, as you can imagine, big bald guys with goatees, original, not anymore, but it was back then. And uh, then the next week I met Malenko and I started training and that's it. So I never had to get beat up. Like when you first went there, was it like you don't get in the ring or does it get you in the ring right away? Because I heard a lot of training from different guys like, oh, you don't get in the ring for like three months, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. First day we got in the ring and he explained everything to us the first day. He didn't take us in there and prove that he could beat us up because he could. He didn't prove that he was in better shape than us because he was. He told us what the business was, that it's a work, you, you know, it's an illusion. You're trying to create the illusion you're in a wrestling match, in a fight, whatever. And he explained everything to us from the start, and we got in the ring, and we first learned how to properly get in the ring, go through the ropes, and then it was circle around, lock up, maybe a headlock, top wrist, whatever, a couple of moves, and you just went over it and over it, and that was it. And then the next week, you'd go over those same moves, and he'd add a couple more, a couple more, you know, and that's how it went. And he never beat us up, never, uh, you know, didn't make us do, we had to do a lot of squats. You hear that story, but he could do 500 squats, you know, even as he got older without thinking, but it wasn't fun, but he wasn't so much like a lot of the guys today. He was more like, okay, this is your time to learn professional wrestling. You need to spend, you know, your time away from here to do your conditioning as far as, you know, go to the gym, do your road work, do your squats more at home. I mean, we did some at the school, but mostly we learned the wrestling. So it's your responsibility for cardio and staying. In right. And he would know if you did it or not, because once you started working shows, if he saw you were slacking or lagging behind other guys who weren't, then he knew you weren't doing what you said you were doing. Because he would ask, you know, what have you been doing? What have you been doing? Doing this, doing that, doing that. And I did what I, what I could do. I mean, I probably lied a little bit here and there, but, you know, who doesn't? <laughs> because, like, Sergeant Buddy Parker, Dwayne Bruce, and notoriously from the WCW power plant would like exhaust the guys to death. By the time it gets to like the third day, the guys are already spent. You know what I mean? Like you always yeah. hear those stories of different trainers, like to have different methods. I see. I know guys around uh, this area that do that and that's their way. And I have nothing against it, you know, because I've been to the schools around here and the guys that are there training don't mind. I don't understand it because you, you know, they, they go in there and they're really beating the guy's bodies up you know, over and over and over. Then they go in there and try to teach wrestling. And it's like, you know, it is what it is. I don't care. It's not my body or my um, experience now, but it's not how we were trained. And don't get me wrong. Malenko's training was rough, you know, because the business is rough. It's not, uh, as they say, ballet. I think Ordorf has a great story. Didn't they make him basically fight everybody and, and like like legit amateur wrestle guys and then the last guy was like wasn't it bob roop or something and of course roop while he's exhausted yeah i mean roop maybe beat him up anyway i mean who knows but it wasn't that the story of like not just order but a bunch of guys where they you get the guy tired but you're legit yeah. shooting on the guy and they think yeah. it's like they, you know they don't know if it's a work or shoot they don't know anything yeah eddie graham used to have bob roop do that yeah and i know there's a there was a video floating around where they they had that on YouTube, I don't know if it's still there, where Bob Roop stretched some guy. And Roop tells the story where he actually felt bad about it, but uh, 
you know, Eddie Graham's standing right there, like, you know, hey, show this guy. Because I guess the guy that in question was being cocky and, you know, going around telling his friends he's going to be a wrestler. And and they sent him on his way. <laughs> but, like, yeah, you hear the story yeah. of Hulk Hogan where he got beat up and wanted to quit and then he came yeah, back. Yeah. And Yep. But it's like Bob Rube is probably going to, you know, if this guy thinks he's legit tough, Bob Rube's probably going to teach him a lesson. But I also think in Malenko's time, you know, he had been kind of blackballed from championship wrestling from Florida and him and Eddie Graham had a falling out. And in his mind, if you got a guy who's willing to pay whatever he's charging to train and you scare him off, guess what? You're not going to make every week that money. So you're not going to beat him up. You, you know, rather than beat him up and then a month for or a day before his first show, you go, Oh, by the way, everything you learned, that's eh, all the work, you know, that, you know, cause you're going to run, th- run guys off. Malenko used to have these two girls that used to come in, big fat girls. And he was had the most he had so much patience with them. They were horrible. Just horrible. But they'd come in every week for months and get in the ring and never progress, never do any better, but he treated them like they were part of the group. And I and I guess they were probably paying him. I didn't never see the money exchange, but that's the point. I don't know. <laughs> I guess sometimes you just gotta be honest with them and just tell them like, Yeah, you're probably not gonna make it. I don't know. Do you, do you ever look at wrestling schools today? You got all these guys on, on Facebook, especially that are always like, they got their opinion about how this should go, how that should go, how it was years ago, even though it wasn't so great years ago. I mean, indie wrestling years ago was just as bad as today. It's just, you didn't know about it back then because you didn't have the access to the internet. You didn't know that in Tupelo, Mississippi, there was some crappy indie show with 14 people there with guys that didn't know how to lace the boots, let alone own any. You know, you didn't know that happened, but it happened back in the old days just as much. But now you just have instant access to knowledge. You don't really want to know. But you see all these guys that have wrestling schools, and you'll see all the, like, here, we had a great turnout today. And not one person in their picture looks like they have the potential to work as a waiter at Golden Corral. So, you know, everybody's guilty of the same thing, and that's letting people in the business who don't belong. I probably didn't belong either, but I love the great Malenko for allowing me in. I don't know, you're a hell of a worker, though. Hell of a hand. He must have saw something. He saw some potential there. I don't know, but I, I had a, the best time of my life, and I love Malenko like a father. All of us uh, Malenko, Malenkoites. I don't know if that's what you call us, but guys that were trained by the great Malenko, we all loved him. And the whole Malenko family, I mean, Dean Malenko, Joe Malenko, fantastic people. And Dean Malenko, I've, I have said many times, the best wrestler I ever worked with was Dean Malenko. Wow. And that's saying a lot, considering all the people I worked with. Yeah, I was going to say high praise. But Dean was just, I mean, he was light as a feather, smooth as silk. He had perfect timing. And on top of all that, he didn't have an ego, and he's one of the nicest, funniest guys you'd ever want to meet. Very sarcastic. Like a Brad Armstrong, you know? Oh, yeah. Malenka, very sarcastic. Humble to a fault, but as good as anybody who ever laced the boots. And I noticed that Malenko, his on-air character, a lot different from when he is backstage, how he acts. Dean Malenko? Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. Dean was always, he had that dry sense. Even at uh, his father's funeral, he was joking around. That's the way Dean is. I don't know. He's just always been that just laid back, uh, what do you call it? I don't know, a dry sense of humor, I guess. Quick-witted, but just a very funny guy, nice guy. But, again, one of the best, or I say the best I ever worked with. But I also had more matches with him. I mean, like, I worked Flair one time on TV. It wasn't that long, but it was awesome. And Flair is awesome. But I had uh, matches with Dean Malenko early in my wrestling days because uh, the great Malenko would run, you know, shows. So his students would get experience in front of crowds. And he also got TV shows together once in a while where, 
you know, always on them. And in 89, I was the mass superstar for a show here in Florida called Suncoast Pro Wrestling because the great Malenko called me and said, Bob, we're going to start a show called Suncoast Pro Wrestling, and we want you to be the mass superstar as the top heel and feud with my son, Dean. What do you think I said to that? Hell yeah. I said, no way. What are you, crazy? There's already a mass superstar. I don't want to insult Bill Eady. Okay, I said, yes, sir, Mr. Malenko. Of course I said that. And I've had people say, well, why did you do that? Because the great Malenko asked me to. And I wanted to do it because he asked me to. Right. But we had so many fun matches. I mean, Dean and I, we had Texas death matches, tape fist matches, you know, matches that went, you know, 25, 35, 45 minutes. So you learn, obviously, a lot more uh, how well someone can work when you got that much time with them as opposed to, you know, five minutes in a TV match. So I just say Dean's the best. With, like, Dean, was he in your class, like, as far as training? Was he one of the coaches or was he involved at all? Yeah, him and Joe used to come in and teach. They were they were up, you know, before us. They were doing wrestling before that. I mean, they were around the business for you know forever, anyways. And I think Joe had done refereeing in the Carolinas and different places before I started going there. But yeah, they came by all the time and trained. So did Carl Gotch. For some of you real trivia buffs out there, wow. Carl Gotch came in and put me to sleep for real one time. We're all in the ringles. Let me show you guys the sleeper hold. Get over here. He put me to sleeper hold and legitimately put me to sleep. And I'm laying on the mat. Look, you know, I didn't know where I was. My jaw hurt for a week, but that was Carl Gotch. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Just kind of was, hanging out, huh? At the time, I thought, what a what a jerk, you know, my jaw hurt and all that. But it, it, I look back at it now and I go, geez, that was Carl freaking Gotch, you know? <laughs> what was he doing? Just hanging out, training, Boris? Well, he was a good friend with Malenko. So he'd come oh. by once in a while and he'd, he'd put you through some, you know, calisthenics and different things because he was from the Malenko mindset. He could do all those squats and or the Hindus or whatever they call them. And that's what they call them. I don't mean whatever they call them. Hindu squats. But he would do that. And, you know, you had to just play along and hope he didn't come back next week. <laughs> right. Was there any other, like, guys that made it in your class? Like, guys that we would recognize? Yeah, Fred Altman was in my class. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Okay. Uh, Barry Horowitz was trained by the great Malenko, but he was there about a year before I was, I think. He was already doing TV for WWF. That's right, WWF, before I started. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of guys that came through. They're not necessarily during my time. Al Perez was trained by Malenko. Fred Altman, I just, did I just say Fred? Yeah. Yeah, Fred was there with me. Uh, a guy named Frankie the Thumper Lancaster was there then. Yes. Uh, the one through three kid came through the Malenko school or, you know, Sean Waltman. And he used to go to shows with me before he got into business. That's how long uh, he's been around wrestling. But if you ever look at this, I have a, a list of all the guys in Malenko train and there's a long list of guys. Yeah. Really good. I think Kane, I thought was. Uh, yeah. Kane is, I mean, I don't know how accurate the whole list is, but it's, it's on my Facebook page, a list of all the guys. And it's a lot of, a lot of famous guys. The Mass Superstar. He helped train the Mass Superstar. The original. When you kind of look back at that training, I mean, was that ideal, obviously, like for you, but not only training-wise, but to help you break in and, and get – because you said he had didn't have a great relationship with Eddie Graham at that point. I mean, does that help or hinder you as far as getting in other places in the business? Well, it didn't hurt me because by the time I started working for a championship wrestling for from Florida was in 86, and Eddie Graham had already – uh, died yeah. like a year or so before that. And, 
and you know, we wrestling back then was it's a, I don't know what you call it, networking or whatever. But you do a show, and there'd be somebody, some guy there that knew of another show and another promoter and this that, and it's kind of, you know, went from there. And you you sent uh, pictures around to different places. Like I sent my pictures to Memphis, and me and a guy named Bucky Sigler went there real briefly for a couple of weeks as the Southern Boys back in '87. You know who the real Southern Boys with Tracy Smothers and. Uh, Steve Armstrong. uh steve armstrong and they were supposed to go there but they had got a deal with crockett and so they caught brought me and bucky in as the southern boys to fill their dates basically is what i figured because we got fired like two weeks later or something by randy hales but it was fun though you know you got to work at the mid-south coliseum and all the towns and work with uh different the moon dogs and whoever Travel with Bill Dundee, who was just a blast, because he'd made sure he went to places that knew who he was. So when he walked in the door, it was, ah, superstar, superstar, you know, and he just ate it up. But it was why'd fun. You get, why'd you get fired? Well, probably because we were just there to fill those Southern Boys dates, and I don't know. It wasn't like I was making a lot of money, so, and I just got married. Like, I wrestled for a company here in Florida. On a, I got married on a Saturday, and the Sunday, the next day I drove to Miami, to do a show for global championship wrestling, which was run by Bob Roop and Malinko was involved and Adrian street, Bugsy McGraw and others. It was one of those shows that they got financing through stocks somehow. It was like one of the first companies to get public, uh, what do they call it? Public funding, public, whatever. And I went there to work and I was, uh, managed by Angelo Poffo, me and another guy. We were the, uh, predators and my name was, uh, piranha steel no my name was shark murphy my partner's name was piranha steel or the other way around i don't know but and then the next day i drove to memphis met bucky sigler in atlanta and we drove to memphis and did the southern boy thing today's episode is brought to you by athletic greens our partner has a product i literally use every day I started using AG1 because I really didn't have the time to work out. I wanted better gut health. I wanted more energy. I want to optimize my immune system. I hate taking pills. I hate taking vitamins. But I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. I wanted to see what all the hype was about. So I looked into Athletic Greens, and they are a lifestyle-friendly brand. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, they contain one less gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything, while still tasting good. They support better sleep quality and better recovery. They support mental clarity and alertness. Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. AG1 is one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. It costs you less than $3 a day. Think about it. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. It's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself, and you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. For each purchase, we will donate organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S., in 2020, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. Right now, to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, it's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one year free. That is right, folks. One free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. What a time. You're getting married, and then all of a sudden you got to wrestle the next day. Oh, that's why I was married for so many years. I was never home. Fantastic way to start a marriage. Yeah, really. Imagine she's like, all right, where are we going for the honeymoon? Nope, got to work Memphis. See you. Yeah, we're going to Memphis. <laughs> but that was fun, though. I don't have no, you know, I ran into, I saw Randy Hales at Jerry Lawler's uh, bar in Memphis in 2017. Friend and I went to the Evil Knievel Museum open in, in Topeka, Kansas. Because some of my stuff is there. But we stopped through Memphis on the way because I wanted to see Jerry Lawler's bar. <laughs> and Randy Hills was there and the doorman was there. And I said, yeah, is Randy Hills there? Tell him Bob Cook's here. And he's pissed off about being fired in 87. <laughs> and Randy comes up and we had a great conversation. And he gave us T-shirts and hats and paid for our meal and stuff. So I don't hold grudges. <laughs> yeah, nice. Look at Randy. I don't. Uh, God forbid I would have stayed there longer and lost more money. Right. I guess, I don't know, it's one of those things where, you know, he's not maybe, not his fault, I guess. No, no. He was just like Jerry Jarrett's yes man or whatever. I don't remember. I mean, this is a long time ago. We did go to Jerry Jarrett's house, though, to like me and Bucky, and they told us what they wanted. Why don't you go to the, no, this is something they wouldn't do today, right? He said, we want you to go to the Army Surplus store and get some uh, denim jackets and then some rebel flags and have them uh, (laughs) sewed on the back. Because I remember in WCW when, you know, they, you had the rebel flags and stuff. You had the Confederate flags for uh, Smothers and Armstrong. But then all of a sudden, a little bit later, they were like the young pistols. And they kind of changed <laughs> their look a little bit. They yeah, wanted to get away know, from the rebel flag stuff. They did that here in Florida, too. They, I worked with them when they were here. They were here in Florida in 80s. I think the same year, 87 or 80, 86. I don't know. But uh, yeah, they had that then, too. But nobody was sensitive back then. You know, the world wasn't nuts back then. Yeah, man, who cares about that kind of stuff? But yeah, people people are nuts, so who knows? With you, though, you got into championship wrestling from Florida, right? Is that yep. really the first major territory you were ever in? Yeah. I mean, I worked, uh, like I said, Malenko would do TV shows here and there, and those were a lot of fun. And it was also a show here, I think it was IW... A wrestling, I don't know. I, I know in 82, Malenko started a, a wrestling show. You found a money mark. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, Tony? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a show out of Tampa, Channel 3 Studios. And it was called IWWA Wrestling. And that was the first time I was ever on TV, which was, you know, nerve-wracking that, but fun. Was that Eddie Mansfield or was that a rough? No, no, Eddie, Eddie. Eddie's was, I think, IWF. And that was like in... 1990s. I worked for Eddie too. He's a great guy too. Uh, but then Malenko had that didn't last a real long time. And then he had another show and that didn't last too long. But then this other company came in with uh, Billy, Billy Blue Rivers and Beverly Shade was their name. And they started a company called, I think it was IWA. And it had Bugsy McGraw involved and Tony Marino, Angelo Poffel, the great Malenko. All those people would always be involved together because, you know, they were great friends. And I got to work for it because I, I worked anywhere the great Malik asked. 
and that was that was a lot of fun. I got to work with Mr. Wrestling too for the first time, or the only time actually. You know, for a for a guy who was a fan as a kid, that kind of stuff was always just you know, wow, this is cool. I'm wrestling Mr. Wrestling too, and I got to take the knee lift. Oh, oh, you know, I always thought that looked brutal as a kid, but then when I did it, you didn't even feel it. You're like, ah, that's how you work. Yeah, really. But I got into Florida wrestling, like I said, in 86, a guy named Louis Estea, who worked for Florida wrestling for years, but also would come to the Malinko school and work all a lot of Malinko shows because Louis, for whatever reason, one of the few guys that could do that because you weren't really allowed to do that back then. But Louis had like a thousand gimmicks. You know, he made his own gear, his own mask. Every time he'd come to a show, he had different outfits and masks. And... But Malinko had a wrestling school in Plant City, Florida. Uh, his Tampa school, we always trained Tuesdays and Thursdays. And on the weekends, he had a school in Plant City on Saturdays and Sundays. I know I'm rambling now, but you asked, I think. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. But anyways, uh, on in Plant City. And every once in a while, I'd just go there to hang out and see who I could train with that was different and learn from. And I just, was just happened to be there on a Sunday morning. And Lewis came by and said, they need somebody to work at the Eddie Graham Sports Complex tonight in Orlando, which is where they had wrestling every Sunday night for championship wrestling from Florida. Cause in those days you hit the same town every week, you know? And I said, I'll do it. And so I had to go all the way back home and get my stuff. Cause I always practice with my boots on, but I never wore my gear, you know, wrestling trunks and that stuff. Never thought about bringing it. And so I drove all the way home two hours. Cause I lived two hours from Tampa. Cause I moved back home after I started training. Cause I hated Tampa. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I went all the way home and drove three, drove three and a half hours back to Orlando and and worked the Eddie Sports Complex against a guy named Jerry Gray, who was the first time I ever met Jerry. I obviously knew who he was. And we're going over stuff in the dressing room a little bit. And he's going, can you do that? Are you sure you can do that? Because he didn't know me from Adam. And we went out there and had an awesome match, at least I think. And we've been friends ever since. And he's the guy who was my partner when we were the Florida Tag Team Champions as the Muddy Yankees. Yeah, what do you think about working with Jerry? Oh, it's fantastic. Jerry's another one, man. I, I worked. Jerry and I worked so many different times together. Uh, you know, not only as the tag teams, that was a blast. That was some of the funnest times of my entire life with wrestling. Is you know, being able to beat Mike Graham and Steve Curran on TV. You know. Uh, from the standpoint of being a Mark or, or fan, you're just like, wow, we're getting to beat Mike Graham and Steve Kerr. Jerry and I went into like a closet after we won the belt, jumping up and down like idiots. And, uh, and then we got, what do you call married to them for a while? So we're working them and, you know, semi main events and main events on smaller shows. And then like, you know, middle of the card on shows when flair and dusty would come in or whoever, but you know, you're making more money, you're working every night and you're learning every time you get in the rink because Mike Graham and Steve Kern, you know, two of the best ever. So that was just a blast. Championship wrestling for Florida was probably the best time ever from that standpoint. Cause I was young. So everything's better when you're young. Yes. Who was running when Eddie died? Was Mike running? Yeah. Mike, Kevin Sullivan, mostly probably. Yeah. Bob Roop also was there. But that was a lot of fun because I being able to wrestle in all the arenas like the Bayfront Center in St. Pete and uh, Lee County Civic Center and Robarts Arena in Sarasota, all these places I went to as a kid every month. And then being able to you know work there and even win a couple there uh, was just a blast. Like I, I beat Jerry Gray. Not really, people, because it's not real. But anyways, 
I had a pinfall victory over Jerry Gray in Sarasota, and they announced me from my hometown, which is Northport, which is close to Sarasota. So I got a big pop, you know, he's from, he's from, you know, Northport. <laughs> and Jerry and I went out there and had a great match, and I got the win, and, you know, there you go. <laughs> There's so much, like, great talent that came from Florida. It's almost like you had to go down there for at least a spell or a tour or something, and then you could leave. It just seemed like every big name ever almost is, like, going in and out of Florida. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I got to see superstar Billy Graham and, and Ox Baker and Joel Duke and the Briscoes, obviously, because they still, they, Jerry still lives in Tampa. But, uh, and, you know, of course, Mike Graham and Steve Kern and Eddie Graham and Dusty. I mean, my God, when I was a kid, I wasn't a Dusty fan when I was a kid. I was more of a fan of the bad guys. So, like, Don Morocco, when he turned bad, you know, turned bad, I was like, oh, my God, Don Morocco. When Joel Duke turned bad, that was like, you know, fantastic stuff or the assassin, Jody Hamilton came in all the time. Terry Funk, of course, Terry and Dory, my two favorites. Dor uh, Terry Funk's the guy who got me hooked on wrestling in 1975. But just seeing all those people as a kid, you know, I mean, for like six bucks, you see Terry Funk defend the world title against Dusty Robots at Robarts Arena. Front row, six bucks. <laughs> That's nuts. Too I bad there's not filming. I can't believe that those two really did get along i always uh oh they they loved each other oh man i always wanted to keep that illusion alive and then uh i was hearing all these stories about how they really liked each other I said no yeah you know <laughs> uh in 2015 the day dusty died we were doing a fan fest in tampa and yes i was involved people i signed some autographs anyways joe malenko put it together because where the fort homer hesley armory used to be they turned it into a jewish youth center and but to pay homage to the wrestling history, they were going to put a giant mural on the wall, and so they were raising money to put the mural on the wall. It's there now, and yes, my picture's on it, folks, and my name. Thanks to Joe Malenko, though. So you know, I had an in, but it's still there. <laughs> but the day Dusty died, we were doing this fan fest in Tampa, and Dusty was supposed to be there. We had you know everybody was there. Al Perez and Roman Reigns was there. Kofi Kingston, uh, Dean Malenko, obviously. She's uh, trying to think, you know, Steve Kern, Ron Bass. Uh, a lot of guys no longer here, unfortunately. But uh, but didn't, uh, Dusty passed away. Dory and Terry were there. The point of my whole story is that I was the one who picked Terry up at the airport because Joe Malenko knows I love Terry Funk. So he's like, you want to pick up Terry Funk? I said, yes, of course I'll pick up Terry Funk. So we got to hang out with him all day. But the whole point of this story is that we were taking Terry back to the airport and he's sitting in the front seat of the car and he's talking to Dory and, and they're both just like, ah, I can't believe what happened to Dusty. I loved old Virgil, you know, and, and, and that we're all like in tears, you know, because they're both really down and basically in tears because it was a sad day, a great one of those days. It was great. But then at the same time, you know, eh, very sad. Oddly, oddly enough, at that period of time, I mean, this is like seven years ago, like you said, 2015, interviewed Joe Malenko. We were promoting a little bit of the Wall of Fame there. Then he mentioned, he, like, he called me back and he goes, hey, you want to have Dusty on? And I was like, I had to put down the phone for a second. It's very few times, you know, you just mark out like, what, Dusty Rose? Is this guy kidding? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, yeah, well, I'll go have Dusty on. That, that sounds great. So two days before he passed, he was on he was on our show doing an interview. And wow. I was inter interviewing him. He sounded great. I had no inkling of it. The next day, thanked him. Thank you, Johnny. You know, blah, blah, blah. Everything's cool. He goes, let's do it again sometime. Blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, 
he passed. I was in shock just because I was, I was like, I just talked to him. He sounded great. Crazy. Yeah, that kind of stuff always, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that here one minute and go on the next. And yeah. obviously it's happened to a lot of people I know, but it's never easy. But yeah, that was that was definitely one of those days where you're like, and we we had just dropped Terry off at the airport, not at the airport, at the hotel he was staying, and we were going to going to go eat and come back, pick Terry up, and take him to the show. But I get a text from a friend. He just it all was all it said was Dusty died. It's like oh, and we all start crying like little babies, you know, because Dusty was always really good to me. He gave me four chances in WCW to do more, and I blew every single one of them. That's right, people. I blame myself. How'd you blow it? What, what did you I do? like everybody else who blames Hulk Hogan because they weren't successful or Ric Flair for keeping them down or Triple H. I blame myself. Well, because I, I blame myself. I screwed them up. What'd you do, though? Well, I did. What It wasn't what I did. It's what I didn't do. Uh, Dusty was going to team me with Tom Pritchard once. This is before he teamed up with Jimmy Backlund or Jimmy Del Rey as the heavenly bodies. He called me into the... the uh, hallway at center stage and he says hey bobby how'd you like to make some more money for that wallet and become a you know work full time and i was like oh sure i love that because well i'm thinking about teaming you up with tom pritchard you know who tom pritchard is oh yeah sure sure he goes but i want you to get in a little bit of shape first okay i will and then uh, later that night i'm at the bar drinking with everybody and the next day i'm sleeping all day and the next day i'm doing the same thing so it never came to pass <laughs> was he sending you to smoky mountain no, this is before that. He was going to bring him to the WCW oh, team. Oh, okay. This is before Smoky Mountain even started. Okay, gotcha. Interesting. And then, get this, I was going to be, originally, I was supposed to be Tex Slashinger, believe I it or not. I could see that. I could see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked just like Dennis Knight. But, and Dennis even brought that up in his speech. But, yeah, I was the original. And I didn't know it at the time. I knew it at the time after the fact. You know, like, I was, I had hurt my knee. And, uh. They never actually told me I was going to be tech selected, but I hurt my knee and I, and Jody Hamilton uh, would bring me in with my knee hurt and just have me do security where I just sit somewhere, but I'd still get paid. So I didn't have to like sit home and be with my wife and hate life. So uh, I was standing by the curtain and Barry Wyndham's standing there and we're watching uh, Dennis and Mark or Tex in Shanghai, if you prefer, they're in a match and Barry goes, you know, that was supposed to be you. And I'm like, what? And he goes, you were supposed to be Tex last year. Cause it was dusty and Barry who came up with the idea to begin with. And I was like, Oh crap. I didn't know it. And he said, yeah, then you hurt your knee and yeah, you know, the business and that's the way it happens. You know, they don't wait for you. And then I was supposed to be the, uh, state patrol with buddy Lee Parker. And I blew that one because it was always the same thing. Well, I want you to get a little bit of shape, Bobby. A little bit of shape, Bobby. <laughs> okay. And I just, you know, most failure is what I am. You're looking at a failure, people. <laughs> but I'm 58 years old and still alive. A lot of wrestlers can't say that now, can they? That's not right. funny. Uh, but uh, where was I going with this? Oh, and then I was supposed to be with Joe Cruz. We were going to be the new assassins. And we were going to be managed by Jody Hamilton, the assassin. We even went to the school and trained with DDP and Jody. And Jody showed us a bunch of different old school tag team things that I can, to this day, I can vision Jody in the match or in the ring, showing us things that guys today don't even come close to doing that would cause an audience to go insane. Simple things that would make the crowd go nuts that they don't even have a clue about today. 
I can think in my mind these things that Jody's showing us. But that fell apart too. You know why? I don't really know the reason, but it screwed. I screwed up because I never would go back and get in the shape I needed to get in. I think I was afraid of success. That's probably it. <laughs> yeah, hey, you were you were too busy drinking at the bar, too busy partying. You know, I had uh, I liked my spot. I don't care what anybody says. They can call you a job or enhancement town. I hate those terms, by the way. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed my time. There was no pressure other than to go out there and hopefully not mess up or hurt anybody. But I showed up on time. I did what was asked of me. I never cared who I who I you know lost to. All I cared about was I didn't get hurt. And all the guys treated you with respect, except maybe Vader or Bugs, Buzz Sawyer, two of the biggest jerks ever to walk the earth, along with Matt Bourne. But all the other guys were just super cool. Easy to work with. I worked with the Steiners, the Road Warriors, all these guys that people think are killers. And they were fun. That's all I cared about. <laughs> it is remarkable, though, because you would think the Steiners and the Road Warriors were killing you. Just It just looked like it. You know what I well, mean? Well, they did a few guys, especially the Road Warriors in the early days. You go back and watch what they did to the TV guys, you know, on the old TBS show in 83, 84, 85. But I think it's like anything. They just they got better. And obviously, if they didn't like you or didn't think you could work or you couldn't work, because there's a lot of guys in that era that were of that ilk, if you will. I mean, you, you will go back and watch the old TBS show, and there's guys on TV that didn't even know how to hit the ropes, let alone take a bump. And those guys got beat up. Those, in my opinion, are the true jobbers. If you know how to work or the people you work with have respect for you and think you know how to work, you're not a jobber. You know what you really are? Carpenter. No, you're a professional wrestler. That's the term I like to use because I trained to be a professional wrestler by one of the greatest professional wrestlers. I traveled the roads like a professional wrestler. I wore professional wrestling boots until Terry Funk gave me a pair of Terry Funk boots. And then I wore those most of the time, but I was a professional wrestler and that's the term I like to use. Nobody used the term jobber back in those days. They didn't go, Hey, the jobbers dress here. You guys dress there. No, we, we dressed wherever we, you know, I, you, you tended to hang out with the guys that you travel with, you know, cause you're just comfortable. You, you know, but you could dress whatever you want. Like anytime Terry Funk was there, I'd sit next to Terry Funk because he, he would tell you stories and, and help you, you know, you weren't like, there wasn't like a pecking order. There's some guys that may say there was, but at least in my world, there wasn't a pecking order. I could sit with whoever I wanted to. Bill Watts used to come in and tell me stories. And Bill Watts is the one who put over my punch. That's why everybody says, Oh, he's got the greatest punch. Bill Watts is the one who did that in front of everybody. <laughs> you still have those funk boots? Oh, yeah. I actually got a new pair in, uh, in the mail this the other day. If you know Come what here. Terry Funk boots are, they're boots that were made by a company called Tony Llama, and they're called Tenny Llamas. They look like cowboy boots, but the bottom half look like tennis shoes. And Terry wore his everywhere. They're not wrestling boots, even though they had a wrestling boot sole for some reason, a wrestling boot type sole. But in 86, I was at the Sportatorium in Tampa, and Terry came in and dressed him. And, you know, like I said, I've been the biggest, you know, Terry's like my, if you want to go wrestling hero, that was my wrestling hero. First time I ever met him. He comes in the dressing room. He's got an earring. Guess what I did after that match, after that day? Got an earring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my dad hated it. I went home and I said, hey, mom, because I was only like, you know, 20 years old. I was still living at home wrestling, right? And I said, hey, uh, I think I'm going to get an earring because Terry Funk has one because <laughs> he looks so cool. And then I, as I got to know him a little bit, I was talking, I love those boots because he wore them everywhere. He didn't wear them in the ring. And I asked him once, I man, where do you get those boots? And he goes, well, if I tell you, you got to promise not to tell anybody else because everybody would be wearing them. 
But then he goes, but I, let me let me give you these. He gave me his pair, and then he showed me where to get the rest of them. And I've had like over forty pair in the last between eighty six and now. I don't have that many now. I got like six now, thanks to the new pair I got yesterday, or yeah, yes, yes, yeah, whatever. But you find them on eBay. They're not uh, cheap. They're not a depends on who you get them from. Like the ones I just got were only one hundred fifty bucks because I got them from some guy who's not knowledgeable of them. Hmm. Lucky. But they're very cool. They don't make them anymore. They stopped making them in 1989, I think. But you just got one pair of actual Terry Funk ones. I call them Terry Funk boots because he gave that pair to me. But I call that style boot Terry Funk boots because he's the guy that made them famous. He wore them everywhere. Wore them them in the movie Roadhouse and on Thunder in Paradise. Other guys have had. Bill Bill Dundee used to wear them a lot and Eddie Gilbert had a pair, Barry Wyndham, a few others, but Terry's the one who, again, first guy I ever saw wear them. They even had a guy wearing them in the Revenge of the Nerds movie in 1984, so they've been around for a while. But Terry's the first guy I saw, and I thought they were cool, and I've just always loved them. Have you spoken to Terry lately? No. I have his number. I just don't want to bother him. You know, like uh, I, I talked to him maybe a year ago or so. I don't know. Then you hear all the, you know, I hear he's doing a lot better. But I don't want to bother him. I'd be afraid he wouldn't remember me. Who is this? You know, right? You don't want to ruin that. Yeah, well, I mean, anytime I've ever called him, he goes, "Hey, Cooker," because he's the guy who actually started calling me Cooker too, by the way, back then. But I just I don't know. I saw Dory a couple of years ago, though. He came to our Legends lunch, and I, last time I wrestled actually was me and Lanny Poffel teamed up. Uh, and wrestled a couple of Dory's students a couple of years ago at one of Dory's shows in Ocala, Florida. And that was fun. Lanny even did the moonsault. He's like 60-some years old. Yeah, he looks like he's still in great shape, Lanny. Yeah, I think he's lost some weight since then, too. He lives in, like, Ecuador or something now. He used to come yeah. to our lunches all the time, too. I wonder what he's up to. That's interesting. Well, quite a... Uh... Quite a shift there for him. Nice. Yeah, he moved there I don't know, probably over a year ago now. As far as just going back to WCW, did Dusty bring you in originally? Like, how did you get in? Because I know you worked NWA, yeah, you worked WCW. How do you get in originally? It's just they call you, uh, you're local, or like, or, or they're bringing you in? No, actually, Sorrelver Humperdinck got me in. You know, when Jim Crockett came in, Florida wrestled in 1987 and bought it out. Yep. He came in with a bunch of promises saying that they were going to do this and do that. And what he really did was he bought the territory just so he could get their television time and put his show on it. So he kept the company going for a while. He brought in uh, Road Warriors and the Four Horsemen and Dusty and ran a few big shows that we were all beneficial uh, for being on because, you know, when they're on the show. Back in those days, you got paid more when the crowd was bigger. And even the, the biggest crowd and the most money I ever got for one match, I wrestled Scott Hall at the Orange Bowl in Miami. For, as part of the Great American Bash 87. And uh, I wasn't even supposed to wrestle. I just went there because it was a big show. And Kevin Sullivan goes, you got your gear? Yeah, because you always bring your gear, right? Yep. Well, you're working Scott Hall in the first match. Awesome. It was literally one of those matches. I attack him. Boom, boom, boom. He reverses it. Power slams me. Leg drop. One, two, three. Easy money. Fantastic. But the point of my story is that Jim Crockett had bought out the territory, then shut it down in an early 88 Gordon Sully, Mike Grab, and Steve Curran restarted Florida wrestling, but they didn't call it championship wrestling from Florida. They called it 
Florida Championship Wrestling. Edgy, huh? Mm. But of course, because we were part being Jerry were there as the Mighty Yankees, and we had uh, Jimmy Backlund and Dick Slater and Terry Funk would come in once in a while, and Dory and Bugsy and a bunch of guys. But again, the point of the story was Sir Oliver Humperdinck was there, and this was right around the time that Turner bought Crockett. And Hump asked me, he said, Bob, you want to do TV? Because I went to do TV in 87, like maybe a month or two after I uh, got married. A couple of friends of mine were going to go to Georgia to do TV for Georgia. Not Georgia wrestling, but World Championship Wrestling. But they're only paying like 50 bucks at that time. But I wanted to go because I wanted to get away from my wife. So I I told my wife, I got to go to Georgia, got to wrestle. So I brought my gear. I didn't want to wrestle, but I get there and Kevin Sullivan goes, you got your stuff? Yeah, but I didn't really come to work. He goes, well, I want you to work with Dick Murdoch. Okay. You know, <laughs> I didn't even think twice, right? I'd do that for free. So I got my little $50. But when Crockett sold to Turner, they were paying more money and paying for rent cars and hotels and treating you better. And Hump asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, yeah. And that's, so that's how, to make a, a long story longer, Swalver Humperdinck is the one that got my foot in the door for WCW. And I was able to do TV almost every week for six years and work house shows too once in a while. <laughs> Pretty awesome, though, because they must have liked you. They kept you around for a while. And you're wrestling, you know, Sting and Flair and Arn and Midnight Express. I mean, it's pretty big names. But, you know, you knew all those guys before that because they came into Florida. Arn was part of the Four Horsemen. He came into Florida. Humperdinck obviously was there. He was managing Bigelow and different people. And he'd been in Florida forever. And Sting, I worked with Sting before WCW, I think in 87, I think, first time. Yeah, for Crockett. But, yeah, it was, you knew most of the guys. And, of course, Kevin Sullivan always had a say. And Kevin has always been good to me. He's actually the one, him and uh, Mike Graham are the ones that made Jerry and I the Muddy Yankees. And the reason they did that is because they're baseball fans. <laughs> yep. They called us in the dressing room at Robarts Arena and goes, hey, I want you guys to wear these masks and be called the Mighty Yankees. Okay. <laughs> Originally, we were supposed to be managed by Bill uh, Alfonso. You know, he was going to do like a heel ref gimmick, and but that never took place. But uh, we cheated to win the titles. Jerry loaded his mask. <laughs> Don't wow. tell anybody, though. Love it. I we never remember. officially lost the belts either. It was one of those phantom belt losses. Really? So Jerry and I always claim we're the last real Florida Tech Team champions. How do they pretend that you lost the titles? Well, it was one. It was a, we, we were doing a show in Daytona, same place where Hulk Hogan turned heel in '96, the Ocean Center. And Jerry and I was—I don't know who we were supposed to wrestle. But we had the belts with us, and they're like, "Hey, you guys got the belts? Yeah. Well." uh, we're going to say that the sheep herders beat you and Mike Graham and Steve Kern are going to go out and beat the sheep herders. Cause it was like some big TV deal. And, and you know, Jerry and I just like, ah, shit, we shouldn't have bought our, we shouldn't have brought our belts tonight. <laughs> yeah. But you know, Hey, that's wrestling. I didn't care. I probably did at the time. Jerry and I were probably like, Oh man, what the heck? Ah, you know, but in reality, yeah, it was all fun. Hey, that's wrestling for you. But I do remember in WCW, you versus Ricky steamboat. You got some offense in uh, on Ricky. Well, I worked with Steve several times and he always let me get some stuff in. That was, uh, you know, one thing I remember when Dusty called me in the dressing room, probably the third time when he told me he was going to do something with me. Uh, to this day, I remember I was walking, like I just worked with Barry Wendham. I was coming through the hallway and somebody said, uh, 
Dusty wants to see you. And oh, you know, I thought, oh crap, what I do? You know, and as I walking by, and Steamboat was talking to Bobby Eaton, I heard him say as I walked by, "I bet he's getting a job," you know, like a full time job. So I remember that. But I worked with Steamboat several times, both in tag team matches uh, as well as singles. He was awesome. But and don't get me wrong, when I say D Malinka was the best, man, there were so many guys that were fantastic. Steamboat, Cactus Jack was a blast to work with. You know, Bobby Eden, of course, Arn Anderson. So many great guys. I even worked with Scott Steiner in Memphis in 88. I go back to the, when Mike Kramer and Steve Kern first started back Florida wrestling, they used Memphis TV for the first couple of months. So they would take the guys that were going to use when they got their TV time or place to tape their TV. They sent us to Memphis and we'd get to win on TV and do some interviews, but it was all geared towards the Florida show. And me and Jerry flew to Memphis early on a Saturday morning with Gordon Soley. And we got to the Atlanta airport and Gordon offered us drinks at 7 a.m. Odd, don't you think? Not if you knew Gordon. But anyways, uh, we got there and the, the deal was we got to do the TV, but then we had to work the whole week. So like we had to work Nashville that Saturday night and we had to work the Mid-South Coliseum Monday. What a bummer that was, right? We were in the semi-main event against Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond for the AWA Tag Team titles. So it wasn't that bad. Nice. <laughs> but that was uh, but we, on one of those nights, we worked with Scott Steiner. In a I don't know who Scott's partner was. He was stiff as could be. This is 1988, so he was really green. But as, when he got in WCW and he learned better, he was easy. Anybody that you didn't like working with, besides obviously Vader or Buzz Sawyer, but anybody you... Kind of uh, fortunately, I never had to work with Vader or Buzzler. Jody Hamilton made sure I never had to work with Vader. And I thanked him. I saw him at a fan fest here in Tampa a couple years ago. And I hadn't seen him in since 94, 95, whenever. And I told him, Jody, I just want to thank you again for never having me work Vader. And he goes, ah, I wouldn't have you work with that fat piece of shit. <laughs> Sorry about the language. I didn't mean to say hey, fat. Uh, <laughs> morbidly obese what about, not that I don't know what that's like but what about WWF how'd you get into WWF uh, Jimmy Backlund or Jimmy Del Rey you know he was there as the Heavenly Bodies I think with Jim Cornette and he just called me one day because I know Jimmy since, he, since I started because he worked all those shows with us back in the day and a lot of indie shows in Florida and for Florida Wrestling he was also on the Florida Wrestling Mike and Steve because he was like one of Steve's best friends. But anyways, that's how I got in. I want to go off on another long tangent, but the phone rang. It was him. He asked me. I said yes, and there I am on TV losing. But WWE was even better because they paid cash. They flew you everywhere, whereas WCW, you had to drive, which I didn't mind driving because I always hated to fly. And I always used to tell people, hey, the longer I have to be away from home, the better I like it. So, you know. If I could fly and be home in two days or drive and be home in 10, I'll take the drive. Hey, with you on that. With but that was the, fun. Working for WWF was, you know, just as much fun. I think at the time, WCW was more confusing or more, there was more chaos in WCW. And when you went to WWF, it was more laid back and calm. Did you like working just some of those guys? I mean, you still, same amount of talent, like the level. Bam Bam Bigelow, British Bulldog, Doink. I mean, working with pretty well, high-level guys. Yeah, all those guys, though, were in WC. Not Bulldog, but like Lex Luger was there when I was there. He was in WC. I knew Lex since he started here in Florida and worked with him, you know, several times and well, WCW. 
So you knew those guys, you know, Bam Bam Bigelow. I worked with him in WCW and in WWF. And so everybody was really cool, you know, for the most part. I remember, and I like to tell people, uh, to give you an example of how important it used to be, at least, who trained you. The first time I worked for WWF, uh, they were rounding guys up who were there for the first time, making them get in the ring and show them what they could do to see if they were TV ready or, you know, if they could good enough to be on TV. And Killer Kowalski was one of the road agents then. And he came up to me and he said, uh, you know, how long you been working? I said, ah, 14 years. He said, who trained you? I said, the great Malenko. I said, the great Malenko. Oh, hell, go sit down. You'll be fine. So that shows you the power <laughs> great, of your yeah. trainer, you know, yeah, that's in my great. opinion. Because I certainly didn't want to go in the ring and practice because I always hated doing that anyway. Once I learned how to wrestle, and I know guys nowadays don't have the same opportunities that we had, or it's not the same, where once we started wrestling, we, we were working you know, all the time or you know pretty much all the time. So you didn't have to go to the school once you learned because why are you going to go there and tear your body up when you're going to tear your body up five other times during the week? You know, Nowadays, guys don't have that same uh, luxury, nor do they get to work with the veterans like I did, especially when I got in Florida wrestling where you work with Kevin Sullivan and Bugsy McCraw and, and all these guys that just have a wealth of knowledge and they're willing to share it with you by just beating you up, you know, teaching you every night. But yeah, so that's that. Malinko's name meant something back then or still does. I think ultimate respect. Absolutely. I mean, look at Dean Malinko still has a job in the business. It's fantastic. Yeah. He was in AEW working. Yep. He was in WWE for 20 years. I wish I could get a job like that. Of course, it's probably not the same as when the road agents in WWF. When when I worked for WWF, the road agents basically played cards. And you they tell you who's winning, and you talk to the guy you're working with. No one ever came over and go, oh, you got to do this and do that. And It was different. And I liked it. Obviously, that's the way we were trained, though. You know, called in the ring. Yep. And. In Florida wrestling and in places like that, you rarely were even in the same dressing room. You know, when you're the bad guys, good guys, and you weren't allowed to be seen together. There was a couple of arenas where you could sneak back and talk to somebody, but that didn't even happen very often because you didn't need to. I mean, it was so much, I don't know. I, I used to have a ring where I was training guys. I'm a horrible teacher. And we had some guy come over. He'd said he'd been working for a long time. He wanted to come over and work the rust off, right? And the guys are in the ring doing what they're doing. And this guy's standing outside and said, why don't you get in there and do something? He goes, well, I, I can't just get in there and do it. I got to talk it over. I was like, what? Talk it over? What are you going to do? What are you, what are you making chili or something? What are you talking over? You know, it was like, it was, I, I was, it was foreign to me. You know, this, this is like 15 years ago or more. Oh, it's worse now though. Believe me. Oh, I've seen guys. I've been to shows where guys will go over a match for an hour and get in the ring for five minutes and still screw it up. You know, it, it, when WCW, very, like when I worked with Flair, he came up to me before the match and he goes, hey, just remember the figure four. See you out there. That was it. Because <laughs> I I knew no matter what the finish was going to, whatever we were going to do to get to the finish, yep. the figure four was going to be the, you know, I want to give up. And he just called the whole match. Every, if you ever watched the match, it's not a long match, but it's a great match because he's a legend, right? It, and everything I do in the match from poking his eyes to this or that, he told me to do it. And that's the best. I mean, that is just the best. The only guy who was different than that was Brian Pillman. I love Brian and love working with Brian. Him and I threw a guy in a dumpster once coming out of a bar. How cool is that? Rest in peace, Brian. Awesome. But, <laughs> yeah, Brian was a great guy. But uh, he liked to go over his whole match. 
you know, he'd get with you and he'd do the whole thing. And then the rest of the day, you just sit there in your mind going, there's a tackle drop. Why is that? Oh my God. And in one of the matches I had with him, I forgot a spot just as he's getting ready to whip me in the ropes. And that's why I always thought, you know, it's funny what people at home have no clue what's going on in the ring, right? Here you are on national TV in front of, you know, however many people and Brian's getting ready to shoot me off the rope. And just before he lets go of me, I yell, I say, I forgot the spot. And as he's letting go of me, I can hear him say, I don't remember exactly what the spot was, but I can hear him say like, you know, drop down, leapfrog, drop down, leapfrog, drop kick, get it again. You know, and it came to me. <laughs> but he was the only guy who liked to like go over to the whole match before he went out. And that's not, I mean, that's just the way he liked to do it. But in, in, uh, DDP, uh, I worked with him, I think, only one time at the as a dark match at uh, Wrestle War 92. Uh, I don't remember him going over everything. He liked to like make sure everything was right, though. You know, it was a tag match. But he used to tape all his matches with a camcorder, have someone in the crowd tape it. And after the match, we went back to his hotel room with Raven, who wasn't Raven at the time. And we watched the match, and he would just critique it, what he did wrong, what he did right, what he should do the next time. So I always tell people, anybody that thinks DDP didn't earn his spot is nuts and don't know the backstory. Hardest working man in the business. One of them. <laughs> yeah, one of them. So as we uh, hit the wind down, we head towards the finish. What's uh, some regrets, or if you had any regrets in the business, would it be maybe that you didn't get, quote, unquote, in better shape and didn't you know, end up being partners with Tom Pritchard? Or like, what are some of the regrets? That's definitely one of them. Not only that, because I had opportunities to go to Japan. The Funks had into Japan, so I was friends with wow. the Funks. And they say, hey, we can get you to go. To, you want to go to Japan? And Linkle, too. But I never felt confident enough to do that. Not only did I would hate the idea of like an 18 hour flight, but I never felt confident in myself. Obviously, if you go back and look, you know, I was not, uh, you know, superstar Billy Graham when it comes to a physique or, you know, so I just never felt confident. So I, so I was just, I guess you'd call it complacent and happy, but I'll tell you the biggest regret I have and people will think it's stupid. I didn't take enough pictures. I mean, I got to meet some of the people I idolized as a kid. You know, I, I don't even have a picture with the great Malenko and that bothers me. Wow. You know, I, I never got, I would have loved to get a picture. would look back now and you go pictures with dusty or Andre, all these people that I met. And I just, you didn't do it. Of course you didn't have, nowadays like cell phone cameras and i saw guys do that and guys were nice about it and you'll hear guys even say that today don't ask don't ask for pictures you know don't, don't bother the stars whatever but i always found that they appreciated i, I know friends that went on trips with me because when i worked for wcw i got to bring my guys with me because i was one of the guys that brought guys up from florida i'd rent a van and pick guys i wanted to bring and i always obviously picked guys i liked that i got along with and I saw some of them get pictures with guys and I just, you know, I didn't want to bother them. And, and they would like flair, especially you ask flair for a picture. He'd thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. He'd be really nice to you, but I never got a picture with flair. <laughs> yeah. So that's really my biggest regret now as an old man and getting older, obviously is that just, you don't have those pictures to look back on and go, Holy crap. I was thinner. Like I had more hair too, <laughs> but it's not a big regret. I got some pictures, obviously, but just not as many as I should have. Although I did have the great Malenko's last match ever and Joe Malenko's last match ever. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And sad. Didn't know that. Didn't know that. Yeah, part of that Suncoast wrestling I was talking about when I was a mass superstar, my manager, there was a lady wrestler called Penelope Paradise, who was also like my best friend and traveling companion all over the country, even on WCW trips. 
but we had a match against the great Malenko and uh, Frankie Reyes, who's not another good friend, but he was a referee, still is a referee. And he he's actually has a school in Tampa or St. Pete, sorry, Clearwater. And that was Malenko's last match. It was one of those devil-edged swords, right? Here you are wrestling the guy you love, the guy that taught you everything. The guy in my uh, uh, case helped me become a man because I was only 18 years old. And I know I'm rambling, you want to go, but when it comes to the great Malenko, I called him the answer man. He was a guy that you could go to with any problem. And when you got done talking to him, you thought you could take on the world because he was one of those guys that lived a thousand lives, right? He was rich. He was poor. He was famous. He wasn't famous. He'd been divorced. He'd been married. He'd suffered the ups and downs of life. And as a young 18, 19 year old kid, he wasn't afraid to show you. <laughs> Not that I always listen. That's another regret I can think of. Geez, I should have listened to him back in that time. I wouldn't have been married. But then I got a kid, though, so, you know. <laughs> but but that's how I always looked at Malenko. And that was, again, back to that match, double-edged sword. You're proud to be part of something that's, you know, his last match. But at the same time, after that match, I got in a dressing room and just cried because it was his last match, you know. So there you go. Bittersweet. Bittersweet, yeah. That's what you call it. What's the stamp or the legacy of Bob Cook in the business? One of the greatest <laughs> punchers. What, what would somebody say, though? Like, Probably, who is he? Like, like, or who like, is that let's guy? Say, let's say Dennis Knight. What's he saying about you? You know what I mean? Like, What do they say about Bob Cook? Uh, well, Dennis was really nice you know, at this Legends lunch, putting me over, talking about how much he learned from me. and Because the first main event he was ever in was against me back, I think, in 19... 19- 91. I think it's on YouTube. A guy named Ron Nemi run ran wrestling shows. It was his first show. It was at the, I think, American Legion Hall in Tampa. And it was Dennis and I in the main event. I was the mass superstar because we also the TV that we did for Suncoast was in Tampa. So they were able to capitalize on that. And I was the baby face for God's sake. And I hate to be the baby face. And Dennis and I ended up the match. I think it ended up being a tag team match. It was like me and a guy named Hurricane Walker against Dennis and his father or stepfather, Ron Slinker. And Dennis and I fought all over the building through the concessions. And, but the whole point of the story is Dennis has always been a, a, a good friend. And and it, he probably laid it down a little thick at the Legend Lunch just as a joke because I said, hey, you got to put me over, you know, as a joke. <laughs> but I don't know what my legacy is. Just that I don't know. Probably don't really have one. Just another jobber that maybe one day will make jobber of the week on one of those – Stupid websites. Hey, good hand with a great punch. Maybe one of the best punches. Well, that's what people say. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you can say one of the best. Sure. I, you know, I, right, punches are like anything else. Some are better than others. A lot of it has to do with who's who's getting punched because if a guy's not going to sell, it's going to look like crap. And, and camera angles can help. Mood can help. You know, <laughs> the kind of mood you're in. There is a but, great video on YouTube. I don't know if you made it or not. I think it's called Power of Punch or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great punches on that. Yeah, that that's all. That video is awesome. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you on that. Every, you know, everybody gets lucky once in a while. But like I that? said, who Bill Watts is one who yeah. started that. Who made that video? Oh, I did. Oh, you did. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, a long time ago. I was bored. It's yeah. all taken from like footage on a television shot with a cell phone camera. Really? Like, wow. Put the footage on a, on a, uh, you know, put the footage on pieces of the footage and then shot it with a cell phone camera. Right. Like an iMovie. Yep. And then threw the music on through YouTube's, you know, 
free music rights or whatever they call those things. Public domain music, whatever. Pretty good though. Pretty damn good. Yeah, there's like I made three of them. I got some stuff from the old Florida days that I put together from '86 and '87, which I look back on that stuff and it's all just uh, a great memory, but it's all like a dream now. You know, like it never really happened because it's so long ago and you're literally you were just a kid. But again, you want a legacy. I don't call it a legacy, but my thing is. I'm not bitter at all, and I had the greatest time of my life, regardless of what some overbearing, obnoxious, pig-faced bastard marks it at home who doesn't know who I am and thinks I'm a jobber once they find out. I had the time of my life, hadn't had a job for 20 years. Can you say that? Stock the jobs at Walmart and leave me alone. Yeah, there you Although go. I think they pay pretty well for Walmart, like 18 bucks an hour, so it's not bad to put really? stuff on a shelf. Wow, damn. <laughs> Overpaid now, damn. Ah, there's no such thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, again, I had the time of my life and I don't talk bad about the business and I, I get moody on Facebook once in a while and I'll see something I don't like and post it. But I always like usually delete it because I'm like, ah, I don't want to come across as that guy that knows everything, which I don't. But you just see something like, oh, God, that's such horrible crap. And you got to point it out. And, and then I realized no one cares, you know. Like as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to switch on YouTube and see what the big surprise in AEW was. If it's oh, Keith right, Lee. Right. I don't care. If it's Jeff Hardy, I don't care. Well, actually, it's, if it's anybody, I don't care. Hmm. If it's Hulk Hogan from 1986, I'll watch that. Nice. Hey, that's going to be a... If it's how are they going to do that? I don't know. Maybe if it's Shane McMahon. Nah, I don't care about that either. That wouldn't be a big deal. Like, you're going to bring a 52-year-old guy who's not actually a wrestler. That eh, makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> well, do you have some plugs on social media? I know you're out there on Twitter and stuff. Do you want to... Uh, get those pluggers out there well i do have a pro wrestling tea store Ooh, uh it's nice. actually the cooker's corner i think is what it's called i sold actually a few shirts i mean i'm about nine hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred and eighty four dollars away from being a millionaire but i've sold a few shirts and uh but I am the social media coordinator for the cauliflower alley club so anybody who's not a member of the cauliflower alley club First of all, shame on you. Second of all, become a member. Yeah. It's very important. Any, anything you, else social media-wise? No, nah, I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I uh, you know, I, I got almost 5,000 followers. I tried to get all of them to send me just 10 bucks, but they didn't bite. You oh, know? man, imagine. Yeah. They only pretend to be your friend to you ask for money. That's the way it works. Unfortunately, I only have a few real friends and I'm going to have to lose weight before I have to make more. Cause I don't have enough to carry the coffin at the moment. <laughs> hey, I got you. I got you. But Mr. Cooker, one of the greatest punches, the power of the punch. Thank you so much for all the time tonight. Really appreciate it. It's true. One last memory. You talking about power to punch. When I wrestled Jerry Lawler and I knocked him down with my punch uh, after the match, he goes, you got a hell of a punch there, kid. One of the greatest compliments I ever had in my life. 1982. It's on YouTube, baby. <laughs> Wow. Me and Pat guy, Rose. The guy with one of the greatest punches of all time is complimenting your punch. Wow. Yep. You got a hell of a punch there, kid. Ooh, damn. Nice. And Pat Rose probably loved it, too. No, Pat's a great guy. He's the guy who got us that match against him and uh, Jerry Jarrett. If it wasn't for Pat, it never would have happened. Nice. Gotta love that. And Pat, uh, all over the place, was in WCW for a while, too. Yeah, he's a... Oh, yeah, he's that's how I first man. became friends with Pat. And he's also a guy who was a wearer of the Terry Funk-style boots. Smart man. Smart man. 
Mr. Cook, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. I hope I didn't mumble too much or ramble too long. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.